take a sim and fix Be a standing cinema Dress my friends up just for show See them as they really are Put the people in my brain Two new pens to have a go I'd like to be a gallery Put you all inside my show episode another amazing guest on another monday afternoon that is very 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 hot uh and we're both a little fried from the weekend or at least i am uh so i'm gonna ask my guest to introduce himself hi i'm scott ewalt um good friend of josh's been djing in the east village since late 80s still going strong and uh you moved to new york when did you move to New York and where from? And and that was Scott's opening song. I know I've had this pattern in the past, all the past shows of doing the opening track. Uh, we discussed this one also, sort of giving that welcome to the show feel. But uh, there's a story with that track also. There's a lot of stories to come. It's going to be one of those more NPR type shows. So uh, yeah, tell us about that song and what it meant to you and who it's by. Uh, well, Andy Warhol was one of the things that really made me want to move to New York. So... Uh, when I found that version of Dana Gillespie covering the David Bowie version of Andy Warhol with Mick Ronson on guitars, um, I always like finding female versions of male written songs and vice versa. So when did you move to New York and what was it about Andy Warhol that enticed you to come here? Was it the Andy Warhol era without giving away too much? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, I read Popism when I was probably in 
junior high school, and it really changed my life. It made me realize that uh, there was a whole world out there of freaks and drag queens and hustlers and, you know, seedy nightlife that obviously I was missing out on as a 12-year-old in San Diego, California. But luckily, there was a, a burgeoning punk scene there, and uh, so I found my way to the people that kind of were the most similar to what I imagined New York people to be like. And then when I graduated high school, I came out to go to college here in 1983 and immediately beat a path to Danceteria. And that was the first New York club I was really hanging out at. Andy Warhol passed away in 86, correct? Yes. So uh, did you have any run-ins with, I mean, in those three years you were here that he was still around New York, the factory is, the state of the factory was what? And was there any... Any story you could share with us about the Andy days before he passed on? Uh, I did meet him briefly twice. I met him once at the Palladium. Um, he used to have this arrangement with the Palladium where he'd pull up with his limousine in the front and just walk through the club, and the limousine would pull around the back exit, and he would just exit out the back door, and they would hand him a check. I think it was for $250. And he would drive around and hit like four or five clubs because they knew that if people saw him there, that, that that would mean that they were where they needed to be, and they were in the center of, of what New York was about. So I met him once at the Palladium, and then I met him a second time at the Saint. And both times he reacted exactly how you would expect. He just looked at me, and I was with Perfidia the second time, and he just said, you know, fab, and that was it. Just That's amazing. And you were just going out to those, I mean, if you had just arrived, you were still in danceteria mode or palladium mode or whatever it was, just hanging out? Or you were actually working in DJing at that time also? No, I didn't take part in nightlife until about five years into my stay here. It was uh, Michael Schmidt that motivated me to participate more because all of my friends, when they moved here from San Diego, immediately became performers and drag performers. And uh, I grew up with Miss Guy and Miss Lauren and Perfidia and... Lulu, and there was about 10 of us that moved out here all within a year. And I was the only one that didn't have any stage talent. So I kind of was always like the backstage person, making them flyers, making them t-shirts, making them backdrops for their shows, and finding the music. And you still, your background was both in music and graphic design? Uh, my, my background is actually in architecture and in painting. Um, I went to, ended up going to Princeton on a ROTC scholarship uh, slash swimming scholarship. And it was a perfect combination because I was an hour outside the city so I could have a double life and do my academic life there and then spend three days a week in New York running around trying to find Andy Warhol. Were there other Princeton people who were doing the same thing as you at that time? There was a, about 10 of us uh, or eight of us. Um, and yeah, they no one is in the scene now from those days but there were like 10 of us at Princeton that were kind of outcasts and we were the you know all wore black and were very goth compared to people with embroidered whales on their jeans uh <coughs> Scott also just DJed good times at Eastern Block this past what was it past Wednesday yeah and uh he did a little Richard uh southern fried soul shack second helpings party we did it last year for pride uh and amongst Scott's broad repertoire of music. He does every, th he's done every Thursday at the Cock for 
10 or 11 or 12 years now, right? Well, it started off as JoJo and I doing every other week together because we were DJing at a, as a team at a place called Cake, which was on Avenue B between 6th and 7th. And there was a party there on Thursdays that JoJo, I, and Formica did called Hustler. Oh, and also, and, and David, wa um, David was also the fourth person there. And uh, it just became very, very popular. It had a back room, and so we kind of made a... Um, we wanted to do something that was completely different from the kind of CNC music factory, Martha Wash thing that was everywhere in New York at the time. And so we decided that we'd do only male vocal records and only rock. And the only female vocalist that we really featured was Susie, who had such a deep voice that it was almost like a man anyway. So it was just a complete inverted situation from what was going on in the rest of the city at the time. Did people pick up on it, that it was an only male vocal rock and roll party, or is that how it was advertised also? Um, I think people just liked a change of pace, and it was just kind of great to kind of uh, masculinize the East Village again, because it had become just very house music, and, and everywhere you went, you really heard the same 20 songs, and so... All of us had grown up in a kind of rock and roll punk environment, and so we just wanted to acknowledge, you know, what our generation was interested in because we had just kind of turned our backs on. Um, since the Paradise Garage closed, there didn't really seem to be a reason to have gigantic club music and little tiny bars. Well, my first selection is going to be a more soulful throwback since I'm not in Susie mindset right now, but we could go into that also. Uh, and I'm guessing you didn't really play the oldies and soulful stuff. I've heard you play at the Cock and Eastern Block when you were doing that party with them, did you? Yeah, we, yes, we definitely did. Oh, okay. Um, we we just were trying to open it up. You know, we JoJo was kind of a genius in the respect that he was the first DJ I knew that wasn't afraid of what the audience thought. He just really wanted to play songs that he thought were great. And he was so convincing um, and had such conviction in the way he looked and everything that p it was just kind of like we broke the rules and we just, it was like the Emperor's New Clothes. We just decided that that was what was going to be cool and we just stuck with it and we were just dug our heels in and, and people liked it. They reacted really well.
children in the marketplace I can see the trouble written on your face Like you, I used to walk around sad as can be But let me tell you children what happened to me Gather around me Just a little bit closer Well, I was walking down the street just the other day When this little old man came on walking my way His hair was long and his feet were bare And people came running from everywhere Because of this old man, number one He played knick-knack on his drum With a knick-knack and a whack Give the dog a bone This old man track uh following my track my track was the five do tone shake a tail feather that was Nick neck patty whack lou lawton a track i don't know how i would ever come across if you didn't come to do this radio show but it's amazing i mean and so my question i was thinking during that song is uh you know the song i i play was from a john waters film it was in a hairspray and then you know i discovered the i can tina turner version of that uh but how do you come across these songs? How'd you come across that song? And how do you usually... And, and let me tell you, Scott also showed up with a stack of vinyl that we're going to play also uh, and told me about his rare uh, sex club and go-go venue sign hoardage. Uh, and I'm very good at scouring for records and MP3s and eBay and stuff like that. Scott blows me out of the water. So tell me about uh, your music search process, and especially for the soulful oldies. I mean, I grew up with WBLS, Long Island Oldies, you know, 101.1, whatever that station was called. Golden Oldies, you know, that, that's, that's a lot of what I know, but uh, I wonder how you came across this stuff. Uh, well, when I was younger, growing up in San Diego, um, the, 
kind of after we kind of did the hardcore punk thing um the the kids all decided that the punk was actually a 60s movement and so all these really sophisticated 15 16 17 year olds started to grow the 60s punk hairdo which is like a mushroom that covers your eyes and wear black beetle boots and black stretch jeans and black turtlenecks and really did a kind of Standells, Sonics type of look. And there was a club there called International Blend that played nothing but uh, Northern Soul 45s and Garage 45s and um, all this crazy underground 60s music. And it was just a real eye-opener for me as a kid because I couldn't believe how together these kids were. And you know they wore everything head-to-toe 60s and it was really looked down upon to wear anything that was modern or be interested in anything that was modern. And so the music, did you approach the DJ at that time? I mean, having known Scott for a long time, I mean, he, you, you are somewhat of a reserved, shy-seeming person. I, I wonder if you did just go to the DJ booth to discover what the song was or somehow go record shopping at that time to find what the song how, how did you How did you find what the songs were? How did you come across this collection of music that you now have? Well, luckily back then there was really a lot of uh, used record stores and one of the best used record stores in the United States is called House of Rare Oldies. Um, and the guy there is, you know, collects mainly 20s and 30s records. So to him, 60s records were actually somewhat new and you have to realize this was only the late 70s. And so he didn't really see the value in these, and but he did get a kick out of all these kids dressed completely head to toe 60s coming in and going through all the stacks. Um, I think the easier thing with collecting old music, too, is that the album covers really do give you some indication of what's on the inside. So if you saw someone with a crazy hairstyle or a crazy musical instrument or doing a, a cover of a Beatles or Rolling Stones song, you knew that there was going to be something weird about that record that the 99 cents would make it worthwhile. Yeah, I'd love to hear uh, one of the standout tracks that you still have in your collection that you brought today that you picked up on solely for the cover art. I could do the same. I mean, I guess it's my turn to play one. So, okay, I did a quick search. I changed the challenge, although Scott is still challenged to do a cover art challenge. This this is uh, typically how I go back and uh, if, if you were wondering and yet not asking me, you know, it's often in modern music that you find a really good sample or a song, be it funk or otherwise, you can go back or sort of stumble upon it later on and say, oh, I didn't realize that was a sample. Uh, you ever do that? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully it lives up to or exceeds your expectations from the song that sampled it. This is one of those uh, that I'm going to play. Scott's probably going to follow it up with a crazy cover art track that we'll post the photo to on the blog. I can't stand the rain against my window. Bringing back sweet memories Yeah, when the rain Do you remember How sweet it used to be Just one. 
Hancock, preceded by Ann Peebles, I Can't Stand the Rain, which Scott pointed out was a Missy Elliott sample later on. I was thinking of the Tina Turner cover from Private Dancer. Apparently, I'm in Tina Turner mode today. Tina Turner sampled and covered mode. Uh, but that was a track that was, excuse me, sa- famous for being sampled by Scott's good friends in Delight, correct? Yes, that's from the uh, the 1967 soundtrack to Blow Up um, with the Yardbirds and Herbie Hancock. And um, they sampled a, a couple of different songs for Groove is in the Heart, but I always love that bass line. So being this obscure music collector as you are, have you had many opportunities to meet the people that are behind the music and producing or making it as well? I mean, I know that you're friendly with D-Light. I'm wondering, like, you know, how far back this music connection goes. And even in San Diego, if you were meeting the artists that you were playing out later on in the 80s and 90s. Uh, yes, I have actually become friends with a lot of the people that were kind of my idols growing up. Um, Mark Almond was a really, really important influence on me because he had this kind of sleazy Times Square persona um, attached to all their music. And it really prepared me to become completely obsessed with 42nd Street. And the minute I got there, that's all I could think about was him. And we've done some projects together. And I've done a, I'm working on a, another album cover for him. And I've, I got to know Susie Sue. Uh, I've been really lucky. I've got to meet a lot of the people that um, I kind of idolized growing up. And does their musical personality translate to them what they're like in real life? Is Mark Almond really like a sleazy 42nd Street Midnight Cowboy? Absolutely. I mean, even <laughs> even more so. Um, you know, we uh, Times Square during the pre-Giuliani era really was our playground, and we would just have the best time going out there and going all to the to all the small sleazy go-go bars and comparing and contrasting what was going on in each one. And he, you know, wrote a lot of songs about those places. And then we did a little book about them that came out in 2001 called End of New York that was about the end of the, the Times Square era. Unfortunately, it came out just a few weeks after 9-11, so the title didn't fly very well with a lot of people. But um, it's an interesting book if you are interested in Mark Allman and Times Square sleaze. So how did uh, the sleaziness of Times Square compared to the seediness of the East Village back then? I mean, I know you've been living on the Bowery for many, many years. Uh, was there crossover in those two scenes? Was it sort of going uptown to play and coming downtown to go to sleep? Or was it separate at the time? Uh, actually, my first apartment was in Times Square. It was on 48th and 10th. And I was a very naive person. I um, came out here one weekend and tried to find a cheap apartment, got a really cheap railroad apartment. But I looked at it during the day and moved in the next a couple of weeks later with a friend of mine from San Diego. And we had never seen the area at night. And the first time we walked out the door at night, the entire block was covered um, in prostitutes. But really, really outrageous ones. If you kind of imagine Vanity Six times like 25. I mean, they literally were all in, you know, rabbit fur coats and lingerie and thigh-high boots with China doll wigs on and a lot of new wave hookers mixed with the kind of Abalonia 6 type hookers and it was kind of heaven but it, it also was very scary. That was 48th and 10th or was that the entire neighborhood or did it change block by block? I mean I'm not even adventurous enough to go over to 10th Avenue all that often now I mean for then it must have been really out there compared to going to you know 42nd and 
seventh or eighth, or was it all the same? Uh, the whole area was pretty pretty out of control. Um, you got to realize that there was ten thousand prosti- street prostitutes between Thirty Eighth Street and Forty Eighth Street on Eighth Avenue. So you're averaging about you know a um, thousand prostitutes per block, and they since there was no internet and no cell phones what you looked like was what you were and so you really had to put it out there visually and so it was it was an amazing place but it was also really really scary because crack had just become the drug of choice of that area and so it wasn't like the early days i imagine with quaaludes and pot and stuff like that that kind of mellow a person out and just uh you know crack really made them scary and they would really you know snatch stuff from you and run and you know, it was really, really crowded and really insane. Well, let me share with you. When I was growing up and coming to the city, my parents would take me in to Soho or whatever, you know, on the weekends in the 80s uh, when I was very, very young. And my mom always told me, even into junior high and high school, traveling to the city, do not go over to Port Authority. Again, I'm coming in from Long Island on the Long Island Railroad for non-New Yorkers. That's 34th and 7th Avenue. You could exit on 8th Avenue, but you're on 7th Avenue. And she always said, don't walk up 8th Avenue where the Port Authority bus station is because you will be drugged and then you will be sold. This sounds so crazy to say now, and I've talked about this with other people, including my therapist. But she would say, you're going to be drugged and you'll be sold into some kind of like sex slavery type thing. And as a young kid, not even gay or anything, I just, in my mind, that was like the most frightening thing in the world to think, oh, I'm going to walk over there and someone is just going to like chloroform me and put me in a van, and I don't know where I'm going to wake up. But maybe maybe that really did happen to little boys from Long Island. Uh, I think it did. Um, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, they used to call it the Minnesota Strip because a lot of runaways from the Midwest would get out at Port Authority with no money and hadn't really thought the whole thing through, and the next thing they knew they were doing live sex shows at, at Show World or doing stag films and any of the number of uh, small film studios and massage parlors, and there were really, really a lot of underage prostitutes running around the area at that point, and a lot of them really didn't know what they were doing. You know, they were drugged up by their pimps, and, it, you know, it was a really real thing. So it's good that your mom kept you out of the, out of the mess. Um, well, we're going to segue now into a, uh, you know, we've done these, we've done these macho disco parties at Eastern Block at Good Times and elsewhere, you know, disco has been on the upswing the past few years. Uh, and uh, I don't really know how to characterize macho disco or what the soundtrack would even really entail besides the, you know, musical score to the film, uh, with Al Pacino cruising, yeah. Uh, which this song is from. Maybe that's why it always resonates with the crowd and especially uh, the bartender, Darren, who is really living the living living the cruising life in 2011. But every time I play this song, he comes over to me and is like, wait, wait, what is this song again? And I always have to remind him, it's Scat Brothers, it's Walk the Night. Are you willing to give me whatever I want?
disguise One look from him can paralyze Resist at any time or place Creeper left slap right across your face Yeah, yeah. yeah. Take care Gonna get you good Scream and beg for more. Yeah. 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 
into our gay music segment of the show, as Scott noted, as if the rest of the show is not gay music. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, again, this is me coming from a much later era and sort of going back to the film Cruising and other, other, other films and soundtracks of that era to sort of discern what the music was, that's how I came across Scat Brothers. Of course, Scott knows like every version of the song, where it comes from, and was telling me the background uh, of the Scat Brother. You could tell here, share it on air, and then talk about your song. Well, I guess it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's one of those records that I saw the cover, and I was like, "There's got to be something cooking here." This is, you know, pretty outrageous. Kind of like uh, the album's done by that band Macho, like I'm a Man, and you know, then then the slide record with the guy's hand going into the Crisco, and you know. That's the great thing about the vinyl era is that the covers really evo evoked the music. So I guess now we're going into kind of a archival, illegal gay records now, right? Yeah, we are. And as somebody, I mean, you could talk a little bit more about you designing 
album covers. I know it's not just Mark Alma. I know you've done a, a bit more of that. Uh, and I've spoken before about it being a lost art form. And obviously I still have that stack of vinyl behind me. And every time I, I talk to people about it, it's, you know, and I end up pulling the vinyl out on, on air, even if it's a Scissor Sisters thing, you know, it's a, even eight, nine years ago, it was still, you know, a big deal to buy a 12 inch record single with a full cover art, which I, which I love, which is why I have a hard time getting rid of them. Oh, definitely. And the, the Scissor Sisters did really, really beautiful covers. Um, kind of evoking the the golden age of the 70s album cover um i think i was i'm almost embarrassed to admit it but i think i was very influenced by the movie xanadu where the guy's uh occupation was to do the giant blow up airbrushed album covers to go on the side of tower records when i was a little boy i thought well that would be the best job ever and so i really sought out to start designing record covers and started off doing punk flyers and eventually um I guess I've done almost a hundred album covers now, so it's it's been really really fun. And and you still enjoy doing it? Do you do you still see it as a valid art form, despite the fact that it's being marketed digitally as part of an iTunes package rather than physically through this twelve inch or you know LP vinyl sleeve? Well, luckily in in recent years the uh, uh, it kind of had a dip in popularity with the CD, um, but then in recent years uh, a lot of the artists have asked for just an mp3 and vinyl and no cd so it's kind of coming back to vinyl and so the big art is coming back and uh i still love doing it because i love it i always work with people whose music i really love and who i love visually as well uh well i know what my next choice is going to be i don't know if i'm going to play it i could just play the mp3 version and take out the vinyl and show it to you you'll probably have like five of them uh but that scat brothers track actually i was telling scott I, I believe there are a few versions of it either white labels or such uh and it is in the movie cruising but maybe not on the official soundtrack but this track is this is another song it, it's a very and i don't have when when you said macho i mean that's obviously i'm a man by macho is the other macho disco track that we always think of and that crazy fisting cover god there could be like a whole album art gallery that goes along with this radio show but uh this track i'm gonna play is uh is one of my favorite songs of all time and probably the most expensive record that I own today that I obviously bought after the fact. Since it came out in 82 or 83, it is called I Got a Little Love by Angela. Do you know that song? No, I've never heard it. So I'm... Okay, well, we're, we're going to play that now and then I'll tell you a whole backstory about how I got in touch with one of the people that worked on the song, etc. But here it goes.
person you'd like to be. Describe your personal dress, your home, your automobile, your desired occupation and income. Be honest. Now, go even deeper. Describe the inner person you'd like to be. Let your mind run wild. Assume you can become anything you desire. The fact is, you will become the person you honestly describe. You can't avoid it. of who you want to become. Constantly hold this visual in your mind's eye. See yourself performing and responding like a champion. Feel the confidence and courage that radiate from this type of person. in a discussion about New York versus California. But uh, before we get into that, uh, tell us about that track. Uh, that was Adventures in Success by The Willpowers, who was actually uh, the photographer, Lynn Goldsmith, and <clears throat> the brilliant uh, pioneer of, of digital imagery, uh, Rebecca Allen. Uh, it was a very popular tr local track in San Diego when I was growing up. And the video was the first... Uh, computer-generated video uh, ever shown on MTV. Lynn Goldsmith was already a very successful rock photographer, and Rebecca Allen from MIT wanted to make the first computer-generated head. Um, she later went on to do the first computer-generated videos for Kraftwerk, which I saw when they came out, and I was doing architecture at the time, and I was like, I want to do that. So... I literally called her from a payphone on 5th and Avenue A and said, would you like another student? And um, she pushed me through, and we had a really, really great relationship, and I uh, learned how to do all my computer stuff, animation and stuff um, from her. Did you know her before you called her, or no, it was just like a total cold call? Well, luckily, I was already kind of a groupie, and so I knew how to approach people on a cold call. And uh, she had a... Uh, primarily uh, computer geeks as students, and they were just starting the, the department. So she uh, liked the fact that I was very into Americana and subculture, and so she said it would it'd be good to have me in the mix out there. So she kind of pushed for me to come. I often wonder, Uncle Scott, in the pre-internet age, you know, it's so easy to send somebody an email that you don't know, or a Facebook message, and be like, I love your work. But before before you could do that, I mean... I guess you could write a letter or start a letter campaign to somebody or else just sort of somehow figure out where they live or what their phone number is. 
and get in touch with them. Is that true or no? I, it just depends. I mean, some people were still listed in the phone book. Um, there's many idols of mine that I pursued that I just called 411 and there was their number, um, Liz Renee being one of them. Um, but uh, yeah, it was more difficult to track down people. But if you did track them down, it was more rare that someone had done that. And so they were usually more receptive to having a new fan. Uh, did you continue doing video work before? I mean, does that still fit into what you do now? Or is it more of uh, graphic design painting type things? Um, it's more digital art. I, the computer generated videos and model making are very, very time consuming. And I decided that I would rather do one frame of something than, you know, 30 frames a second of something. And so I just concentrate on still images. I, I stopped doing uh, computer generated models in 94. But you got into graphic design, digital graphic design quite early on in the game. I've seen your thesis work hanging in your apartment. I mean, was there a point when you saw it coming and you knew it would turn into what it is now? Or it, it was unforeseeable back then? Well, it actually turned out different than I expected because I thought that digital art was the wave of the future. And I thought that painting would probably not you know, be so relevant in a few years after it was invented. And so I decided to start doing only digital art and I stopped painting. Um, as it turns out, um, painting is still just as popular as it was, and and there is kind of a stigma against digital art because it is reproducible. And you, I mean, looking at your CD labels, a lot of them have the Cosmic Cavern label on them that you did for that party. You're still very friendly with Kenny Scharf and a lot of other artists, correct? Is this what you, I, and I know you have a lot of salons and dinners with them. Is this what you guys discuss? I mean... Do they have different viewpoints? And did they have different viewpoints on digital art when you were getting involved in it and doing your thesis work? Uh, definitely. Everyone was very excited for the kind of futurism, futurism of digital art. Um, but it has yet to find its kind of niche within the fine art world because people still like to spend a lot of money on unique works of art. And so the, the reproducibility has definitely been difficult in the same way that it was for photography. Well, I say we throw in a Kraftwerk track now for uh, good measure. There's no point in talking about this without playing it. And we've conferred, we've decided, and Scott wants to chime in and tell us about the voguing history of Boing Boom Chuck. Oh, there used to be a, a club called 1017 that uh, was the Roxy before and then the Roxy afterwards, but in the kind of late 80s it was called 1017. And they played a lo lot of electronic music, but it was still a very big voguing community there and this was a very very popular song for them to break it down to boing boom chuck boing boom chuck boing boom chuck boing ping boom chuck ping 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 boing ping boom chuck boing ping boom chuck Boing, 
music non-stop. Tech-no-top.
somewhere and now it's on twerking radio tell me about that track on air again please scotty Walt. uh that was a chris and cozy track called sweet surprise um if you ever find the 12 inch you'll notice that the t- two of the four figures are blocked out on the picture sleeve because uh it's the eurythmics doing uh the vocals and a lot of the electronic uh instruments on it chris and cozy of course were from throbbing gristle and psychic tv and you were also saying that Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart were under contract at that time as Eurythmics, so they couldn't appear as Eurythmics on that collaboration, uh, which probably wouldn't have gotten much commercial success, but hey, you never know. Uh, on that earlier show, I think my first or second show, and I'm guessing it was probably a similar year as this, is when uh, Laurie Anderson's Big Science album came out. Same time or no? Which I think it's about the same time did have surprising commercial success in London or in England because of, uh, what's his name? Who ran, you know, he passed away recently. He always did those. He was a BBC DJ. Yes, the Peel Sessions, correct. Um, and on that note, and on all my brain freezes, we're going to go on to talk about Scott's East Coast versus West Coast takes. Or maybe we could talk about your, your time with uh, Terry Moogler, as we were talking about before, right? Mr. Pearl. There's so many chapters to the life of Scott Ewalt. We're only going to get to cover three or four of them today. Uh, but do you want to speak to those? Uh, sure. What's there to say? I'm friends with Mr. Pearl, and I did a Terry Moogler. Next topic. Uh, well, uh, you know, Terry was very much a mentor to me. Uh, I met him at just the perfect moment because he was hoping to meet someone in New York that looked like a vampire and was interested in architecture and I was very interested in a lot of the same uh, image makers that he was interested in and so he was uh, happy to hang out with a young kid that um, you know knew a lot of his reference points and 
uh, as we got to be better friends. Is that what he told you, that he wanted to meet somebody like that? Uh, yeah, he did. Okay. Um, actually, Suzanne Barsh set us up because he had expect, uh, expressed a desire to meet a certain type of person and was very much into New York at the time. And he met Connie Girl around the same time and um, Mr. Pearl and Abel Villarreal. And there was kind of a whole uh, group of us at Vige that, um, you know, we were kind of like a little clique. He was coming over to New York from that time and just visiting, or he had moved here and was really trying to acclimate himself to the city? He was here working on his first photography book, which was all um, women dressed in Mugler, you know, in the complete Mugler look, on top of very, very large buildings, usually very high up in the, uh, above the street. And he was photographing uh, a model named Claude on top of the eagle on the Chrysler building in a gown. And so he was working on this, his first book. And, um, and then he was about to embark on his vampire collection. And uh, I don't know, we just got along. And I was, I don't know, we just got along. And Mr. Pearl, of course, was the um, corsetier. What do you call, what's the word for it? I guess corsetier's right. Um, you know, it's just a great couture. I, I don't even know if designer is the right word. He's more of an artist. Um, but he met Miss Lauren, and Miss Lauren was already training her waist because she was very much under the spell of uh, Fakir Musafar and um, the woman who had the world's smallest waist, whose name is escaping me right now. Um, and uh, so she was training her waist, and Pearl saw a picture of her and freaked out, and he started training his waist. And he did a photo session, I believe, with the Face magazine where he, they put some of his corsets on models and they really damaged their ribs. And I was over at his house just hanging out because we were friends, and he said, I really... For those who don't know, tell them what training your waist is. Uh, wearing a corset so you move your ribs and your organs um, to give you a smaller waistline. Um, and I'd read about it, um, but Lauren was the first person I'd ever met that was actually doing it. And this is kind of, you know, pre-Madonna sex and all the, you know, the S&M on the street look and everything. She was very much the kind of most avant-garde person in New York of our generation doing that sort of look. And um, so Pearl asked me if I would like to be a fitting model for him because we lived just a few blocks apart. So I would come over once a week and he would have a new adjusted version of the muslin corset. And he was trying to make corsets for people that were more the same height as the models that he wanted to fit for shows. Was there an S&M component to that scene going on also, beyond the fashion? Uh, definitely. Um, a lot of the girls were working in dungeons, not Lauren. I mean, um, you'd have to ask her more about what her personal S&M involvement was. But... It, w it was kind of the the end of the 80s, and uh, we just wanted to bump it up a notch, you know, and we wanted the shoes to be higher and the hair to be bigger and the waist to be smaller, and, you know, everybody was really, really exaggerated, but very, very austere at the same time. And so it really worked perfectly for Moogler to come into our circle of friends at that time because we were all kind of on the same page of, where, of the direction he was going in. Well, musically, let's move on to this record you have with Miss Lauren on the back, right? The same Miss Lauren or no? Oh, no, I'm wrong. I'm thinking of Lady 
Lady Claire, Miss Lauren, Lady Claire. Some overlap there. We could do that. I mean, is this the same era? This is this record. This is this vinyl record. Oh, wait. No, say it into the microphone. Say it into the microphone. This is earlier. This is from 1985 from Funtone USA. This is, I believe, Larry T's first record with Now Explosion, which is kind of a local fun hit here at the Pyramid when the Georgia invasion occurred. Uh, Josh and I decided to go with Stuff by Now Explosion. record including Larry T and friends from Georgia bringing it on home to daddy by the now explosion of course as Scott was saying they famously all came up from Georgia together to New York at the same time that the B-52s were going on not only going on but were big right well I think the B-52s are really inspiring to a lot of the southern acts um, in kind of fusing disco and kitsch and new wave and making this kind of new type of music that I think eventually kind of morphed into RuPaul and Delight and that whole kind of more humorous type of dance music. 
well, going back to my childhood, being scared of 42nd and 8th Avenue, I, I, it was the same time that the B-52s were my penultimate band, uh, and I was seeing them in concert and going back and getting all of their old uh, records, CDs, cassettes, all of that, cassette singles, Channel Z. Uh, but uh, this song in particular was always, always up there as one of my favorites. Uh, it's only fitting to play it after those guys, right? So here you go. And might I add, Fred Schneider came to a party we did at Eastern Block, and I asked him like about all these songs. He's like, I don't know, we were high. I don't know what was going on. We were just high, and we did that. Seven stars 
Planet Claire. She came from Planet Claire. She came from Planet my favorite b52s tracks there you go planet claire want to comment on that scott that's a classic can't get better than that song no it's amazing uh yeah no stories about that i think they started that like beginning part by holding a fan over the guitar strings or something you know scott having grown up with all these people or being around them the new york art scene it's maybe commonplace or whatever i mean fred schneider also lives in new york now and came to uh new york after being in georgia uh with uh, everyone else we were talking about at that same time period. Uh, but also popped into my party. To me, I was still starstruck. I was super starstruck when he got on the microphone and started singing Rock Lobster. But, uh, you know, he was super sweet. And I called him the next day and he answered. Caller ID unseen saying I had a great time. And uh, he said, I had a great time too. I'd love to come back and do it. Uh, but we're moving on. How How is this next record connected to the B-52s? Uh, well, this is Dean and the Weenies, uh, which... We were kind of a revolutionary band that came out of the Pyramid and just excellent band. Gene Johnson, uh, Perry Masco, a lot of the most hardcore, weird kids out of the Pyramid. And, uh, you know, everyone in the band was, the three lead singers were all bald, which um, was kind of novel at the time. And this is from, uh, this is the mix that comes from the movie Mondo in New York, which I really recommend all twerking fans to track down because it has a lot of the 80s stars from the pyramid in the movie. Yep. 
problems to analysis Take your foot out of your mouth and suck on this Johnson, R.I.P. We were talking a little about Dean Johnson before he passed away just a couple of years ago. I, I really met him, came across him in the later years of his life, but he was pretty prolific on the New York City downtown scene for a long time, correct? Oh, yeah. He was, his shows were amazing, and the fact that he actually really articulated the lyrics and they were really, really clever was a, a big draw. Um, and just the visual was great, too, because it was, you know, a six foot ten bald drag queen with two bald girls flanking him playing bass and lead guitar and i don't think it's every day that you meet someone who's taller than you correct did his height intimidate you uh no we got along you know immediately um i always liked dean and was kind of in awe of him when i first met him yeah he did i only came across him later on he was doing sort of these back room oriented sex parties uh downtown triple x right and uh stuff at the old i guess it was the was it the car it was the hole i don't know just all over, uh, you know, with Jenny McGovern, Dan Ardiccio, and then he sadly passed away on a trip to D.C. And it was sort of unsolved if you go back and Google it, but I think his family came to peace with it, as did a lot of his friends. So what are we doing next, Josh? <laughs> well, I really didn't have a follow-up uh, song to that, and then this song popped into my head, which I'm sure you're going to say that you know the people who wrote this, and they're good friends of yours you're having dinner with later this week. But... um. You know, Consolidated, a.k.a. the Yeasty Girls? I, I do. They're good friends of his. He's having dinner with them later this week. No, I'm not, but uh, I do know one of them. Um, they're great. Well, friends of mine, uh, D. Jacobs and Eric Jacobstein, two fellow Jews, reminded me that before I had this radio show, uh, back in college, we all had a radio show together called Crack It's What's on the Seder Plate Next to the Haroset live from the R5, which was the commuter rail from Haverford, Pennsylvania, where I went to school, 
into Philadelphia. And we just got together like we're doing now and played songs uh, once a week. You would be hard-pressed uh, to ask me what songs it was that we played because I have absolutely no idea. But our college radio station at Haverford had sort of undergone, uh, well, it was just being sort of depleted year by year. They were selling off all the records. There wasn't funds to keep it up. And internet radio had not yet really been a viable option. Luckily, it did become an option, and an amazing donor who remained anonymous donated all this money for the radio station to sort of upgrade itself, have all the necess- that, excuse me, necessary things to become a radio, uh, an internet radio-based station. This is pre-podcasts. But there was one song we did play every single week, and it was this song uh, called You Suck by Consolidated, a.k.a. The Yeasty Girls. <laughs> Yeah. You say you want these to be even and you want these to be fair But you're afraid to get your teeth cut in my pubic hair If you're lying there, it's big of me to suck your dick You're gonna have to give me more than just a token lick Well, you may not like it, but you better learn how Cause it's your turn now Now you
if only those pre-podcast podcasts from Haverford College had been recorded, you could hear me singing along to that every single week. We all would. It was really fun. Uh, but now, uh, I don't know what we're going to move into. What is Scott Ewalt doing in 2011? Uh, in terms of music or? In terms of everything, Scott. Are you still in touch with Manfred, a.k.a. Terry Mugler, and Mr. Pearl? Uh, a little bit, yes. Um, I mean, actually, you couldn't have picked two more reclusive people to ask me about. Um, but, you know, all of, I don't know, all of the group of friends are all still in touch. All the, I mean, he used to call us the Muglerettes, you know, all his sidekicks, which is about a dozen people. Um, and we're all still friends. So, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a nice little family. Uh, and how's your summer going? So you're, you're a professor now also, right? You have a master's. Is it a PhD? It's a master's. BFA? I mean MFA? Yes. MFA, Master's of Fine Arts. You're on break from the summer, but you're teaching a class. You're DJing on Thursdays. And uh, what gets you out of the house now besides DJ Sparber and your incredible roommate, a.k.a. my wife, Stephanie Stone, who we intended to dedicate that pre-Eurythmics, Eurythmics track to? Uh, well, I'm in an art show right now at Anna Costera Gallery, uh, curated by a good friend of mine, Doug McClement, and uh, waiting for this book that Participant Gallery is putting out on a whole bunch of us uh, kind of pre- and post-punk artists, uh, and just enjoying the summer. So being a veteran of the East Village and of downtown New York for a long, long time, uh, I wonder what your take is on what the scene is like now. I mean, I know you're privy to it from going out in the East Village a bit here and there and DJing every week and having a roommate who's performing more and more every single month. Uh, somebody came to my party on Wednesday coming from the boob reunion, or maybe that was the Wednesday before Desi and Viva Yeah Scandalo had done a video premiere, and we were talking about how a lot of people can get down on the scene nowadays being real up on what it used to be like and I wish I could remember who it was but they were saying you know this stuff is still going on your party's going on spanker doing warehouse parties you know these things are still happening maybe not as much as they used to happen but as somebody who has seen it all what's your take on that uh, I think New York is better than ever actually um, I think there's always just as many people that are trying to make their way uh, as artists and as performers at any given moment um, I think sometimes when people get older they don't realize that uh, when you're kind of new to New York and you're 21 years old everything seems really really um, gigantic and then it gets smaller as you get more familiar with it but I think that there is probably more going on um, than ever before and I'm just as excited by New York as the day I got here that's amazing. Uh, and would, would you, we, so I was asking before off air about your move to LA and coming from San Diego and having spent time in San Francisco where you were saying your former uh, Times Square neighborhood roommate had ended up relocating to. Would you ever live elsewhere? Um, probably not. I mean, I really love New York. Um, I love the convenience of it. And I think once you go to another city and you realize you can't go out to eat at 3 a.m., um, it just, changes everything um i like new york for the night i like the west coast for the day if they were closer together i would do half and half if i could we're gonna play a quick game because there's so many stories i didn't get out of you 
uh, but I say a person, and then you give me a a one to two sentence story about that person. Let's start with uh, just a quick vignette about every person. In and positive, we only say positive things. We're all about positive energy here at Twerking Radio. But your your neighbor uh, and building partner, Pat Fields. Uh, well, you know, Pat's a great person. She's kind of like uh, anti-mame of the future, and it's, it's been fun um, doing this business venture with her. And, uh, you know, we were friends, you know, from very early on. So That was more than two sentences. Aldo Hernandez. Aldo was great. He inspired me to really abstract dance music and not be afraid of what would happen on the dance floor. Perennial twerking radio favorite, DJ Lena. Uh, I love Lena. I always thought she was the fifth member of the Pointer Sisters until someone told me I was wrong. Uh, Stephanie Stone, a.k.a. Charles Alexander. Uh, she's a tall drink of water. Nisham Wooden, a.k.a. Mona Foot. Uh, King Kong in a dress? <laughs> As a compliment. We're only saying positive things, but I never even... Uh, Mona uh, very much loves her King Kong persona. And I didn't even put two and two together. I know that your former roommate, before my very good friend Stephanie Stone lived with you, was Mona Foot slash Nisham. I don't know how much Mona she was doing when she lived with you, but uh, I can see parallels between the two of them uh, from when Mona used to go out and perform a lot, and maybe Stephanie's been performing more and more and more. True or false? I mean, yeah? Uh, well, I think there's there's been a long line of great underground divas that have lived in that space and I think that people just fall into the spell and want to perform more um, and I love to be around people that have a great sense of humor and so that's always what I've looked for and, and someone to share the space with that makes sense there was a crazy story I tried to rehash about how you ended up living on Bowery and second uh, with a roommate who had found the apartment's amazing I could do a two hour show just on location in Scott's apartment just pulling out things from the shelves t-shirts, records, and just getting the story, which is really the magic and charm of Scott Ewalt. But uh, we'll save that story for another time, right? It's a really crazy story. Okay, so it's uh, it's the wrap-up song time. Uh, I guess uh, I should choose a song to wrap up my set with. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close out my set, although Scott is more than welcome to play one, two, three, or four more tracks, uh, with a song uh, by these guys, Benoit and Sergio. I thought of this because... I want to play something new now and happening as we were just talking about that uh, in the New York scene. This is not necessarily guys that live in New York. I think they probably hail from Berlin, Germany, if I had to take a guess. Uh, but as you were saying before, you were really inspired by JoJo uh, playing whatever he wanted to hear. I mean, and that's something you do a lot when I've gone to your parties on Thursdays at the Cock. I think it's something that's really hard as a DJ to uh, find the courage within to play something regardless of what people are going to think about it or not. Also, depending on the time of the night, uh, at, at my parties, and especially my weekly party, I think I reserve that 10 to 11 o'clock slot, which is slower than later at night, to play more experimental things that I'm not playing out regularly and seeing not only how they sound, but if there is any reaction. This is a song by Benoit Sergio, uh, who did this incredible track, Walk and Talk. God, maybe I should even play that. I don't know if I've played that on the show before. But this one's called Principles. Uh, and... Yeah, I played it early last week. I've been DJing so much, I haven't gotten much new music in the past few weeks since the previous radio shows. But this guy came up to me uh, and immediately asked me what this track was, which I always think is a really great thing and encourages me to play new and exciting music that people don't know 
because they sometimes really get into it. Unless, of course, it's high tea on Fire Island. But even then, sometimes you never know who's going to be listening to what. So uh, this is my closure to the set.
Rewind, I had to mix it up with our other track, Walk and Talk, because I'm dying for Scott to hear it. Also, Ben Juan Sergio, Walk and Talk.
that was my Benoit and Sergio super set. Uh, and it's that time when we're closing out the show uh, and saying goodbye and thank you to our incredible guest, Scott Ewald. I have to say, everybody that I tell that you're doing the show or I say, oh yeah, Scott's going to DJ with me because he does these little Richard parties and hopefully others, they get they go crazy. Everybody loves you. Do you know that or no? I don't, but I'm glad to hear it. Do you, do you feel reclusive? I mean, compared to the two friends of yours that I selected that you called out as reclusive, do you feel like you, you go out a lot or not really? Um, you know, I work on my own, and so I go out to socialize, and that's the best thing about DJing is guaranteed one night a week I'm going to be out with the kids. And those kids are crackheads at the cock at 2 a.m., 2 to 4 a.m. who are coming out to hear your music as well as find something else, no? It's the life I chose. And it's a great life. Okay, so tell us about this. Uh, tell us about this final track you're gonna play for us. Uh, this is a track by Joe Cuba. I I just love it. It's in terms of it's a, just a real New York, uptown summer song where you really feel like you can uh, feel the uh, water coming out of the fire hydrants and the kids playing along the Hudson. Look forward to it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you again for doing the show. Feel my beloved barrio, my ghetto. This is the story of where I was born. No man's land between 115th Street and 125th. Everyone today is talking about El Barrio or their ghettos, about the hard times they had. We had hard times, but we had good times too. I can remember the summer. Summertime was beautiful. The days were long. We didn't need any ocean breeze. To the left, we had the Hudson River. To the right, the East River. When we wanted to refresh ourselves, who needed the ocean? We had the pump. <laughs> you remember the Johnny pump? All we needed was a good, good screwdriver and a can. And we were refreshed. At night, the breeze was beautiful. Tar Beach, that was our meeting place. And we had, we had fun galore. When I went home, my mother was beautiful. Our food was really together. Rice and beans, that's our soul food, with a little coochie fritos on the side. And for a little dessert, we had Mavi, the grooviest tasting drink you want to try. Everything was beautiful to me. My querido, my beautiful body, my ghetto. I feel it in another way I feel the pressure that keeps us down Yes, I feel it, I feel it, baby But I feel it in another way El Barrio is a place that's uptown I'll be gone, 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 gone,